Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hey everybody, welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Today, we are revisiting a favorite topic of ours uh, throughout the past few months, and that is the employee benefits realm. With us today is Darren Fogarty, the employee benefits advisor at WinCline. And, you know, this was a fun topic to start exploring because Darren took the initiative and reached out to the show and said, hey guys, I'd like to talk a little bit about what we do in specifically what we call the no-do gap, which... I'm paraphrasing here, is when an employer or decision maker has all the information they need to institute a better benefit structure, yet they don't do anything with that, even though it'll save them money and lead to healthier employees. So we said, you know what, that is a very interesting topic and said, Darren, when are you available? And so joining us and and welcome to Healthcare Americana, once again, Darren Fogarty with WinCline. Darren, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. I really appreciate you because what's one of the fun things about doing a podcast is you get to spark a lot of imagination with people or we touch upon a subject that somebody feels really passionate about. And obviously, we hit one with you. Uh, we we're talking about employers. You know, what, what, are, what options do businesses and employers, business owners, what do they have rather than just the monopoly of health insurance for their employees? even though it keeps going up, up and up and up and up as far as pricing goes. And so that's when you reached out. And yes, everybody, we do read all the emails and everything you, you send us. So I just want to you know, keep those coming. Uh, and every once in a while, you know, we're able to, to get you on the show too. So you brought up, Darren, this, this concept of this no-do gap that you see when you talk to employers. Give us kind of your side of that and where this idea came from. Yeah, that's, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to, to explain it. Um, this was a, a pet project of mine that I was working on for about a year. And I sort of came back to it when I had some free time in my hands. And then I would put it down for a little while and learn some more and then come back to it. It really started in, in mid to late 2019, where I kept reading these studies that were coming out about waste in the healthcare system, employer perceptions of health insurance. And there was all this like survey data coming out and these new studies being released. And I, and I just, it struck me one day, I said, a lot of this we've already known. We've known this for 10 or 15 years. This is a similar story. I, I feel like the people who have been paying attention to the data and what we know about this stuff aren't really surprised about this. So I kind of thought at a, at a, at a high level, at a systems level here. And that's why I wrote this about the healthcare system overall. But I also um, wanted to extend that analogy of the no-do gap, but the gap between what we know collectively as an industry or what employers know about their health plans, how they're not performing well, how they could be performing better, and what they choose to do with that information. I wanted to extend that specifically to private employers. I don't really think that the solutions to health or healthcare problems are going to come from the government or uh, from a lot of the big players in the health insurance and healthcare industries. Uh, I think it's going to come with basically uh, self-funded meaning that they fund their own health plans, uh, employers who want to do something different, who want to take a step and depart from what we have always known toward some of the um, more innovative, more forward-thinking models of providing care to their employees. And that's, I think, where the action is going to be. So I wanted to outline at a, at a top level 
you know, what do we generally know as an industry is working well in this space and what is sort of old news, not really working well, hasn't been working well for patients and, um, and doesn't work at all for employers' bottom lines. That's how, where I came back from this. I want you to paint a, a, paint a picture for us because what we see is that in the course of Freedom Health Works and we talk about direct care, physicians buy into it and they say, oh my gosh, wouldn't that be nice? Or that sounds too good to be true. They learn all about it. They do their homework, yet they decide to take a job with a hospital system and go right back into what I call kind of the insanity cycle, you know, thinking yeah. that this hospital job is going to be different, even though you know that there is a better way to care for people and a better uh, model of business for medical care. Relate that to what you see in your industry. I, I appreciate the opportunity to connect there. I'll go ahead and uh, at the outset, I'll say that I didn't actually discuss that particular piece of it in my paper, but I, I appreciate your connection there, about, you know, asking me to comment on it. This is a little personal for me in that my best friend is in his third year of medical school. And so I have been discussing with him a lot of what I have learned both on your show and also just in general from my exposure to the industry. I've been discussing with him and saying, you know, hey, uh, let me show you this podcast with Keith Smith that I, where I just heard him talking about to, you know, to all the graduating um, students from medical school who have just completed their residency. Don't be lured into taking a job at a hospital because you will come to regret it, even though the salary upfront is quite is quite lucrative. That's something that I've sort of been discussing with him whenever I see him. I saw him last weekend. We were talking about it a little bit, uh, you know, toward you know, at the end of us spending time together. And so now I'll speak directly to your question with that context. I think that there is a tremendous amount that physicians themselves actually don't know. And so they can't cross the no-do gap until they know something. I asked him, how many business classes do you take in your med school program? And he said, zero. Absolutely. He laughed. He said, absolutely none. And I know originally before he even applied to med school, he wanted to get an MBA as well because he said, I want to open my own practice someday. That was way back when, before he had really gotten into the business of studying medicine. So he recognizes that there's a need there. I would say that makes him fairly unique. A lot of the physicians that I've talked to, discussions between physicians on social media really emphasize the lack of knowing their worth and knowing how they can transcend the system that they sort of feel caught in. And so I'm reluctant to say that they... They can cross this no-do do gap until they know that, which is quite regrettable. And I think that just illustrates how much education still needs to be done. And for that, I appreciate the work that, that your show does. Once they do know the difference, yeah, so I'm not a physician myself, so I'm speaking a little bit on my depth, but I think that crossing that no-do gap probably has to do with knowing a person in your, in your network who's done it before, right? Who's, who's stepped away from industrialized medicine, who's stepped away from a, a position at a hospital or you know, where they're contracted in an insurance network and said, I'm going to take a step out of this and I'm going to become a direct primary care physician or open my own practice where I get to set my own rules. That's hard stuff. And I know the work you guys do at Freedom Health Works is basically geared to supporting that, which shows the need for, for people to help those cross that no-do gap. It's the education component is just so critical when you're trying to show really everybody out there, but starting with physicians that, hey, there's a totally separate industry really under this flying underneath the radar that is built on the interaction between a patient and a physician. And, you know, I, I love a lot of the things that you're talking about as far as a lot of the studies that you champion and, and looking at, um, I'm trying to think of a couple of them that came across my radar here that, you know, you've been uh, sharing with all your, your followers online. And, and if anybody out there is in for an interesting connection, 
connect with Darren on, on LinkedIn because he has some really incredible stuff that he shares, very much study base and, and a lot of academic articles that point to the current healthcare industry trying to reinvent itself by building a better mousetrap. And like, that's the best way I can describe it is, again, going back to that circle of insanity that, well, we're going to try this. We know it doesn't work, but maybe if we cut costs here or cut reimbursements here, then it's going to start working. And, you know, Darren, get your take on it. At what point do you keep reading these things and looking at all these different types of studies and, and the things that come across your desk and just say, what in the hell are we doing? This is absolute lunacy. Well, you know, I, I've been in pursuit of the question for a long time. Why do we talk so much about trying insurance in this, in this healthcare system? Because I think that the, I know that's a pet um, point in, in your podcast, and I really appreciate that. The distinction between insurance <laughs> and actual care itself is, is, is huge, and it, it can't be overstated enough. Many of my friends who I've spoken to who are extremely intelligent, I say, I just quiz them. I say, what do you think of when you, when, when I say a healthcare company, what do you think of? And they say, Blue Cross. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, it's just like, that's, they don't, they just move money around, you know? And, and so I, I, I won't harp on this point because I know it's pretty well developed in this show. Sure, to your sure. listeners, but just just to sort of you know corroborate that, so much of the conversation around insurance, I think, is centered that around that because that's the way that academics talk about it. So I, I sort of did my own personal investigation. I said, this insanity can't just be because you know we're all caught in the system. There's nothing we can do about it. It must be in the way that we talk about it. And I, I think there's a lot of power behind language. I used to to be a writing coach for three and a half years at my undergraduate university, and so I really have a deep respect for the way that words have impact. And I found that almost everybody who's been considered an academic on this on the subject of performing healthcare has talked about it mainly in terms of insurance. And I finally came across an article that discussed it. And what they said was the reason why it's been focused around insurance so much is because back when care didn't cost as much, that was the way to improve people's access to care. It was to get them insurance. And I think that that has really deteriorated over the past 10 or 15 years. Maybe it goes back even further than that, but that's what I'm aware of because, because of how old I am. It's becoming decoupled because insurance is no longer a viable means of financing healthcare in this country. It's the, the prices are too exorbitant. The, the, the bills, the reason why we see things about surprise bills in the news all the time is precisely because one out of a thousand times the bill is going to land out of the in the patient's lap. And those are the stories that we hear. And the only reason they ravage people's finances so, so harshly is because of the price of care has, has escalated so much. And so I think that there is a lot of room for some counterculture observations and discussions about what we need to fix care. I just became a member of a direct primary care clinic two days ago. I turned 26 and I fell off my parents' insurance plan. And I never wanted to take the insurance plan of my own employer. Funnily enough, we're sort of a small, a smallish company. And so they, don't, they can't offer a very vibrant benefits plan just because of the way the Affordable Care Act works and uh, with the um, age-rated plans or community-rated health plans. But uh, to, to sort of narrow the point down, I'm looking forward to developing that, that relationship. I was reading about Dr. Fisher uh, at the Fisher Clinic in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. I was reading about his story where he broke away from medicine. He said, I think the, the way that he phrased it was that he felt as though insurance was intruding on his patient relationships. And so he, even though he worked in a regular insurance environment for 10, 15 years, he broke away about a decade ago. And I, I'm looking forward to, to talking with him more and having some of those one-on-one -on -one conversations about why exactly he feels that way and, and how all the dominoes fell for him in, to, to allow him to arrive where he's at. 
And I, I think that it's incumbent upon benefits advisors out there to start facilitating these conversations because they stand at the nexus of a lot of the entire healthcare system. They, in a sense, touch every single part of the healthcare system. And so they have the opportunity to, to broker, quote unquote, those, those um, relationships between employers who are funding the health plan on behalf of their perhaps thousands of employees and the physicians who see them. Do I think we have a unique opportunity here? And I think everyone has a role to play in advancing this new narrative about what it means to heal a patient and what it means to, for them to be able to actually pay for that in, in a realistic and predictable way. And I don't think that insurance fits that description. Being a student of language, like you said, you're speaking to the core of me on that. You know, and it's, we, we talk to doctors and they're like, they use the word provider. And I said, did you go to medical school to be called a provider? And they're like, you know what? I'm a doctor. I'm a physician, right? You also like to draw the line in the sand, the difference between a broker and an advisor. And you kind of teed us up into that segment of the show. Give us a little bit of background on why you don't call yourself a broker and that you much rather be called an advisor in what you do. Yeah, this is an extremely intentional point. It perhaps could be the point I'm most passionate about in the work that we do. I, I know that you had Carl Schussler on the um, show probably a few months ago, and he sort of made this distinction uh, very, very vibrant for you. Um, but I, And I wanted to take a moment to expound upon that a little bit. I have a deep understanding of the identity of a broker because of my other job. I've worked at a think tank in DC uh, called the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard for about five years. And we are an advocacy or nonprofit organization that basically advocates for why the differences between a financial broker who works at a brokerage firm and an investment advisor who helps manage financial planning, why that distinction is so important. And so I actually came to Wincline with that background. That was one of the things that I brought to the table. And I really helped John, the CEO of my company. He already knew the difference between a broker and advisor having made the transition himself, but really pushing him to the next level of challenging him to understand why he should call himself a fee-only benefits advisor rather than fee-based. So that's a a slightly parallel argument. I won't get into it now, but there's a distinction there. Here's what I would say to, to answer your question. Brokers are people who help broker transactions. They are responsible for executing transactions on behalf of the clients that they serve. They help address an information gap between the buyer and the seller in a transaction. And we commonly understand this role in real estate and to a lesser extent in finance, I would say, uh, although I think people are far more aware of it than they are in benefits. I can make that comparison having spent three or four years in both industries at the same time. A broker also, you could consider your car salesman a broker, right? He's brokering a deal between you and the car dealership. And there's this expectation that when you walk onto the car lot, this guy or this woman who's smiling at you is with the greatest beam in the world, they're there to make a sale. So your guard's up, you know what you're, you know what's going on. That could not be more different from the role of a trusted advisor, somebody who you pay directly to represent your interests and your interests alone. There are different standards of ethics that are applied to brokers and financial advisors in the investment world. Brokers have a suitability standard where the recommendations they make to clients, they only have to prove that it's suitable for the client. Whereas for an investment advisor, they have to hold themselves to a fiduciary standard of care, meaning that they can only make recommendations and and give advice in the client's best interest solely. And so there is this much higher standard of you can only work for your clients. We see this, this standard in medicine with a doctor, right? A doctor is not supposed to prescribe a medication because he or she gets a kickback. They're supposed to provide medical advice to a patient 
solely based on the patient's interest. I know that that sort of, there are examples where that doesn't hold. Of course, there are always exceptions, but that's, that's the role. That's what you would want your doctor to do. Same thing with the lawyer. You never want to think that your lawyer is giving you advice because of an, they have a conflict of interest somewhere else. That's not supposed to be in that profession. And I would argue that the same exact thing should be in the benefits advisory profession. And this is something that we are very passionate about advocating for at Wincline. We think that it really is at the heart of how we do business. In my view, and, and John is sort of, my boss has, has said this and articulated this perfectly, and, and I, I really see a lot of value in it. He believes that we couldn't do the work that we do without that type of relationship with our clients. Mm-hmm. The fact that we only accept fees from our clients means that we can ask extremely difficult questions about how to set up parts of a self-funded health plan that other brokers will never, they will never even get arrived to those questions because of the way that they are compensated for instance, I'll give you an example, reinsurance, stop loss for self-funded employers, basically an insurance policy to make sure that you don't incur a whole bunch of claims in a given year. Brokers are compensated off a percentage of that premium, of the stop loss premium, insurance premium. And so when we go in and we say, this stop loss policy that you guys had in place makes no sense. You're way overinsured. And by the way, there are a couple of features that you could add to your health plan that would basically save you about 50 or so grand a year at virtually no risk to you whatsoever, if you really break down the mechanics of it, we're capable of doing that because it doesn't matter to us which stop loss policy they place, right? We, we get a, a direct fee from them based only off the value we provide to them in that advising relationship. And so I think like that's one example. There are probably a dozen that we could talk about if you know, we had more time, but that is at the, the heart of how we do business. So that's what I would say. The difference can't, you know, it's almost as big as the difference between care and insurance to me. It's it's massive and it's it's not well understood. And so part of in my no do gap paper that we were discussing about, that's one of the sections that I I I, I talked about the difference there. This is a no do gap that we need to start helping people cross. You brought up how we pay different types of people who are just in the raw sense brokers, auto brokers. You know, it's a salesman when I buy a house or sell a house, that rate that my broker gets paid, my real estate agent is negotiable. It's very transparent, right? I don't know a lot of business owners Mm -hmm. out there who know for a fact what their brokers make per month or per deal every time they sign that paper for what they term to be, you know, again, air quotes, health benefits. And you ask those questions like you just brought up, where is the financial incentive for a broker to bring in these plans. And, you know, we've talked about really the true definition of a client and what you guys are doing and what really makes an advisor. You're getting paid by the client rather than by whatever plans you're selling to somebody that you're, I don't know, as a customer, uh, not, even a, not even a client. Like mm-hmm. that's always been very ambiguous is what you call that, what a broker would call a business that they call, that they, that they write a policy for knowing that their salary is going to be paid by the insurance company and by the insurance plan. So it always fascinates yeah. me. And gosh, you know, this kind of goes back to that idea that we see this on patient side. When a patient walks into a hospital, nobody thinks to ask, how much does this cost? And like you said, you know, from the duty of a doctor to provide great care, I think having an idea of what the financials are, so you can advise the patient for proper care and treatment and, you know, not overburden them with a, a bankruptcy or anything like that. I think that all goes in one of the same, but 
I don't know why people lose their minds when it comes to healthcare and people are almost embarrassed to ask how much it costs or how much a broker even makes. Yeah, I I have a funny personal story. I went to my to my old primary care physician who I've I've literally had since I was a child. I mean, I've I've known this guy for 20 years. He's a great guy. My dad knows him. You know, he's in, I come from a small town in North Carolina, smallish town and and so as uh, I won't say his name, um, but he, he's great. He's a great guy. He always asks about me and we, and he spends more time with me than most do in an insurance relationship. I think we spent about what, 15, 20 minutes together. Anyway, I was uh, getting, I was getting my checkup done annually, I think last year. And I think I had expressed to him that I, I sort of was having some appetite issues or I was feeling a little, a little lethargic at that point. Just, I had had that problem for a couple of weeks uh, and I was just, just didn't think it was anything serious, but and he said, well, let's get some blood work run. And I said, okay. I said, well, you know, me not knowing anything, right? I don't know anything about this recommendation or anything like that. I trust him, but I just said, what does it cost? And he said, well, don't don't worry. Insurance usually covers it. And I said, that's not what I asked. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I, I didn't actually say it like that, you know, but but that's what I was thinking. I and I said, well, you know, I, I basically kind of cobbled together some explanation about, oh, well, I work in, in sort of in this tangential industry. And I, I, I'm just interested, you know, um, and it turns, you know, it turns out he said like, you know, I don't think it's really all that necessary. And it, it would have been like a couple hundred dollars. And I just said, look, you know, that I'm on the state health plan. My parents are both teachers. They pay into this plan. I don't like, I, as like, you know, with your permission, I don't really think that I, I need this blood work done. I, I don't really think I'm having a huge problem. And I said, how about this? I'll call you back in a month. And if I'm still feeling this way, uh, or maybe even sooner than a month, I'll come back and get the blood work done, you know? And it turns out I didn't, I didn't need it. You know, I, I, it was just a little funk that I was in and I didn't need it. And, and you know, it's just when someone else is paying the bill, I'm a big incentives guy. I studied economics. That's what I got my undergraduate degree in and my master's degree in at, at Duke university. And that's just like incentives matter. And so when there is no incentive for me to ask that question, the only reason I asked it was because of a deep curiosity that I have because of this world that I've been involved in for the past two or three years. But if I hadn't had this job, I wouldn't have asked that question. And that to me, I think playing out over a lot of people is really part of the problem. So this direct primary care relationship that I'm about to get into, I'm really excited to get into the thick of it with a, a healthcare, you know, not always going to say provider. Look at that. The language is just everywhere. Oh my goodness. My new doctor who understands where I'm coming from and is willing to work on the same side of the table with me to say, you know, we don't take insurance. So let's figure out what's best for you. That's right. something I'm really looking forward to. Right, right. And I had a similar story to that. I was at the uh, optometrist and we're doing all kinds of stuff. And I said, well, I just want a cash price. I'm curious. And at that point I had you know, vision insurance and they said, well, I don't understand why you're even asking that. And I was like, well, you know what? Go ahead and cancel my appointment. I'm not coming back here. You can't give me an accurate price. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Like right, you said, it's not the damn question I asked. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're going to flush down the bloated system because that's where you think the gravy train is. And I know that every DPC doctor out there listening is is kind of nodding along to what you're saying. Like, no, I get it. I've been in there. I've been in those shoes before. You don't know. A lot of doctors don't well, know, but they almost treat ignorance as bliss, and they don't want to go find out. And so that's kind of the challenge that we always extend. If you're a doctor and you're billing insurance. Go out there and, and, and do a little research on your prices. See what's see what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. If I ever had to, you know, have a huge 
high dollar surgery of my own, I would have gotten invested in the price of the care regardless, but, but that you can't rely on everyone else feeling the same way. I was going to say that in defense of the people who are answering your question, they're sort of trying to short chain, like shortcut you to the, to the answer that they think that you want answered. And that's, it's scary to think that a lot, almost every other patient out there probably would have just, that's where they're like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. So it takes a free market purist like yourself, if I may say so to, uh, to get, to get really, um, you know, push back. And I would also say that, you know, to give the benefit of the doubt to these physicians, I was just listening to a, a webinar with Dr. Marty McCary, who you, I'm pretty sure you've probably heard of. He, you know, he's a, he's a, a surgeon at John Hopkins who's gotten really involved in uh, reforming our healthcare system. And he was talking about, he said, you know, the reason why physicians aren't invested in this system and, and sort of thwarting this, this system that they've gotten caught into is because they're throwing all of their energy 50, 60, 70 hours a week into, into trying to heal people. And I really think that it's, it's sort of unfortunate that I believe that they are going to be, that they need to be at the forefront of getting involved in, in turning the ship around. Um, but they have to, it's no longer acceptable for them to sort of be asleep at the wheel here. And um, I, I think that there's an enormous incentive for them to, with how overworked and, and overburdened they are. And they're, they're also incredibly intelligent people. I mean, can we just say that? Can we just say that these people who are physicians are probably in the top two or three uh, percentile of, of, of brains in the nation? If we got them together to sort of advocate for something different or enough of them start leaving that it becomes a critical mass movement, it would make a big deal. It would really fundamentally change some things. So I, I, I'm looking forward to that. I, I hope that that will occur over the next five to 10 years. And I'm, I'm here to play whatever role is appropriate for me to play to help facilitate that. Oh, absolutely. Very well said. And it kind of goes back to our original topic of that no-do gap. There's still a very minority uh, group of physicians out there that know that this is a reality. And if we, as, as you know, Freedom HealthWorks is expanding the primary care and helping a lot of doctors out there, you know, we are attracting a ton of interest from specialist physicians and had a couple of them on the show hmm. here, too, to tell their story. So, you know, it, it's happening. What I think that being in this industry for as long as we have, that it would just be incremental gains and the floodgates hadn't been opened yet. No, I thought I thought there'd be probably 10x more. Um, but, you know, mm. that no-do gap is, uh, I, I guess, constricting. Uh, it's getting smaller. More people are finding out about this and more people are, you know, signing up to go into the direct care route. And I say direct care that encompasses primary care, surgeries, specialties, all that kind of stuff. We're yeah. going to take a quick break. We're going to hear from some of our awesome sponsors here on Healthcare Americana. And then when we come back, we're going to finish up our conversation and, and, and get Darren's take on your provider networks and direct contracting and see if those have any type of benefit for the future that we want to make. So stay tuned. Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs, and employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year, so shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing co-pays or deductibles. 
Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.org and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care. At Green Imaging, we provide diagnostic imaging procedures that include MRIs, CT scans, and x-rays for half of the average price in a health plan. Most people don't realize that the most expensive place to get an MRI is right down the hall from the prescribing doctor. This is because 70% of doctors are now employed or subsidized by our hospital systems. When we get an imaging exam at a hospital-owned imaging facility, the cost of care is three to seven times more expensive than it is at an independent imaging facility. There is a better choice that can save you up to 65% or more. That choice is green imaging. In most hospitals, there are 16 administrators for every single doctor. This creates an unnecessary burden on the price tag. By removing this excess, Green Imaging provides diagnostic services typically at one-third of the price or less. Check us out at greenimaging.net. All right, welcome back to Healthcare Americana. Once again, I am Christopher Habig, joined here today with Darren Fogarty from Wincline. And we've been talking about Darren's philosophy of this no-do gap. When somebody knows about something, knows it's the right way to do it, but yet drags their feet on implementing it, and we've talked about this with physicians that know about the direct care world, direct care business models. And from Darren's world, when he's talking to an employer about a better way to provide, again, employer benefits, which Darren, I hate that term. I really do as far as healthcare benefits, because again, people default to, well, I need to check the box every time I go get hired. And do you guys provide benefits? Yes, we do. And everybody thinks that just means insurance. So there we go again, talking about the power of language and how we actually break down some of these definitions to change people's minds. So I want to get your take on it. When you walk into or have a sales meeting with somebody, what kind of language do you use? Do you use benefits uh, as defined by health insurance plans? Or are you able to think outside the box and say, you know what, your employer employee benefits can actually mean giving your employees and your team a real personal physician that can take care of their family. Doesn't that count as employer benefits without dealing with insurance? Yeah, there's a lot of layers to this question. I mean, I think ideally that would be the case. We've toyed around with calling benefits assets instead, but I don't, I think it's I think the scourge of the language is sort of a a function of the actual underlying insurance system. So it's hard to get away from that on any meaningful sense from an employer who has been fully insured and has had that, that sort of sleep at the wheel kind of health insurance plan design for two decades. I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of work to be done in transitioning them. So here's what I would say. When we talk to clients, one of the things that we have sort of found out is after, you know, reiterating this over and over again, is that, there's a lot of hesitancy about switching plan design up. And so I know that reference-based pricing is sort of this very catchy term out there for very aggressively pushing plan forward into embracing a new t- t- style of paying for care um, that really doesn't, that bypasses insurance networks. The, the truth is, is that not a lot of employers are ready to actually do that. Um, and just, just to be honest about it. And second of all, there's so much improvement that can happen before then anyway, that there really isn't a, ne- a need to focus on that to the exclusion of all else. So I think that what we have found is that after we spend the first two or three years improving their health plan from its current state into something that works better for them, that 
consistently slashes their overall healthcare spend by, you know, at least 10% a year or so. And at the same time, allows them to reinvest those types of savings back into improving benefits design options. That is something that we see with all of our clients. And I think for the moment, they're overjoyed about that. And once we reach that critical point where they've saved so much money that they can, for instance, completely waive any patient on their plans copay entirely, like all their cost sharing, if they receive a second opinion, right? Putting that carrot in front of them and saying, if you become invested in your care as well, the plan will pay for all of it because we, we've actually saved so much money. We, we can afford to, we, we budgeted such, so, you know, this amount of money and we're saving so much that these types of possibilities may become possible. Then at that point, after we've had built up that trust, built up that relationship, proven ourselves over the two or three years, had a lot of those conversations and a lot of the, the questions about why do I even have this insurance plan to begin with if it's not even helping me? You know, we had a massive claim and we had to pay almost all of it. My insurance company under my PPO network didn't really give me a very good discount. They kind of, the insurance company basically gave us the middle finger. Why do we even have this? Why, why do we pay for this? Why do we it's so funny when I was looking at my drip, uh, my new DPC's uh, website, he said, paying a premium to pay a premium. And I was like, that's so smart. That's so, it's such a great way of putting that. And that's what so many companies are out there doing. So once we build up that trust, then we can start talking about the more quote unquote radical design changes of saying, let's implement you guys, a direct primary care physician that, that basically serves almost exclusively your entire company of 400 people, Right. What about having a direct, a bunch of direct contracts in place with the local hospitals that you, you guys see all the time? So that way they know what they're getting up front and you guys know what you're paying up front. That's kind of where the action goes and how the, how the journey happens. So we cross that no-do gap together over a, a, a period of two or so years building that, that relationship up. It makes a ton of sense. And, and let me ask you this question because you, know, you mentioned RBF, reference-based pricing. RB, RBP, whatever it is, um, <laughs> reference-based pricing, which basically you go out to a hospital system or wherever they get care and you just get a fixed amount, get quote for whatever a knee surgery is going to cost, whatever, uh, you know, insert procedure. And then you go off this price list and then you bring that back for your actual clients, the company to look at and say, if any of this happens, send your people here, this is what you're going to pay, Right. Do you ever see anything that is more oh, kind of boilerplate that can be applied to a lot of different areas? Or is everything you're doing very highly customized by whatever area that you're in and whatever local hospital system deals with those employers? That's a good question. I think the answer almost certainly has to be that it's customized because the, the success of these reference-based pricing plans uh, where you know we have a lot of direct contracts in place. Um, that is something that is really local. And so just as an, as an example, I work remotely in North Carolina and my company is located in Phoenix. And if I were to ever take on a client that was here local in North Carolina, I would have a lot of work to do on my hands to start developing those local relationships, knowing where to send people um, in a way that our knowledge, our deep knowledge of the Phoenix market just wouldn't translate into. Mm -hmm. So I think that it has to be very localized. Um, the other thing that I would say, though, is that, you know, reference-based pricing is a little bit, um, it, it, since it's based on the Medicare reimbursement rate, it's a little translatable, whereas these more direct contracts that are just specific agreements, not necessarily tied to any percentage, whether that's 200 or 150% of the Medicare rate. I think that there's a slight difference. People tend to talk about direct contracts and, re and reference-based pricing as though they're one and the same. I don't really agree with that. Direct contracting is reaching, is the employer reaching out to 
a hand surgeon and saying, how much will it take for, how much would you accept payment for, for these two carpal tunnel surgeries that we need done? You know, and that's, to me, that's the apex of, of, of what this type, what this should be looking like, because then it's the physician coming back and saying, gee, you know, I, I've taken into account all of my costs, all of my expenses, and I'm you know, building in a little bit of room for profit, for my time, for my expertise, and I'm coming back with a, with a figure, and there is no insurance relationship. There's no, there's no claims adjudication. There's no going back and forth fighting with the insurance company. There's no, uh, you know, pre-authorizations. Gosh, I hate those things. Um, you know, there's none of that involved. It's, it's just the care involved. And so I think that's a way better way of approaching it than simply going to a hospital system as an, as an employer and saying, slapping your card on the table that says reference-based price and saying, we're going to pay this amount. I, I think that's something that there's a place for it, but only because of how, how much of a wild west situation healthcare pricing has become. It's sort of employer's way of fighting back. But I wouldn't recommend it as a, as a primary strategy. I think it's better to build out these these direct contracts of care. I think that's the way to go. It's a better system. So what I'm hearing is we got to put an APB out there for any type of specialists, including primary care and general practitioners, that, hey, there's a huge market for your services, much rather contract and sign on to uh, direct care specialty and direct care, direct primary care rather than go around and try to negotiate with a bunch of these big hospital systems. So that's what I'm hearing, Darren. Tell me if I'm nuts. No, I I agree with you entirely. I think that some of the groundwork's already been laid. Many of your listeners and many people who, you know, had nothing to do with this show necessarily. I've heard of Keith Smith at this point, Surgery Center of Oklahoma. You know, that's to me the flagship of, of what's everything that's right about care. We redirected an employee from getting their entire colon removed for like 250 grand to surgery center of Oklahoma. We flew him out there and uh, he got a second opinion. And the, the all in cost was like, I think I did the math. It was 9% of the other cost. It was like 20 grand. And that was for his hospital stay or excuse me, not for his hospital stay for his hotel stay for like six days to recover uh, for his flights out there. And he didn't need that procedure, you know? And it's like, he would have had a colonoscopy bag for, for months. Wow. One victory, one victory like that, you know, you save someone's life. The person who'd been communicating with the patient said that he sounded like a completely different person once he'd have that procedure done. We can't shout that from the rooftops enough. And the only way that we were able to do that is because we emailed basic, I don't remember remember what was Dr. Keith Smith or or someone else at his his facility who works underneath him. But we said, Hey, we have this patient. Can you give it, can you give him a second look? And, um, and there was no, you know, prior off. There was no like barrier to that care. All of these administrative burdens that get in the way. I mean, God only knows that that would have been possible under an insurance-based arrangement in a status quo system situation. Mm-hmm. I, I have to suspect the answer would either be no, or it wouldn't have been plausible because it would have taken so long. And so uh, I think been, um, it would yeah. have been no and hell no. End yeah. of story. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, 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 and you know. I really do mean this. No one knows if, if the reason why the patient was directed to go to that to that prior surgeon was because you know the insurance company is trying to, to to sort of steer volume that way. I, I I mean that literally. I don't know, but I but but that's how these kind of things work. You know, generally speaking, preferred provider organizations are about physicians accepting lower reimbursements on on aggregate, but getting patients steered to them. That's yeah. that's the dark deal essentially. And so uh, you know, if, if you're caught into that, then 
I think it's so true that it strips the patient out of the consideration of it. It's it's like patients become a commodity. I, I know that might sound like a little bit radical, but that's kind of what it is. And and I feel like whenever I got medical care under my parents' state health plan, you know, I, we had pretty good insurance, relatively speaking, but it always kind of felt like I wasn't invested. I wasn't into, into it. I felt like I was being poked and prodded. I didn't really, I didn't always feel like I was part of my care. I didn't feel like I knew what was going on. And, um, and we've seen overwhelming success with, with forming these direct contracts and CCing the patient on some of these, some of these emails and, and, you know, getting them to become aware of the possibilities of their care. They know who the physician's name, who they're going to go see. They don't just walk in the hospital and, and get operated on by whoever's on deck, uh, whoever's on shift that, that night, they, they can reach out to the, to the provider physician. So sorry. Should not say provider. Oh, it's so hard. It's the language thing. I'm going to keep um, picking on you too. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you just said something that was interesting um, there, you know, and, and I think the fundamental problem of the United States healthcare industry is that it separates the buyer and seller and builds a bunch of crap in between yes. there. And so what yes. you just said, though, you talked about having good insurance. And I find that when you talk to people about their insurance plans and you know, what I try to do, what we're trying to do with Freedom Health Works in the direct care world and build that up is people say, well, I don't really need that because I have great insurance. And the better people think that they have insurance, the better plans they think they have, the farther away they are from being an actual consumer and calling the shots and yeah. making their healthcare dollars. I find that to be absolutely fascinating. And and I don't know whether, you know, we need some psychologists to get out there. And, and like I said, I'm going to pick on you for saying good insurance. But like you said, if I have good insurance <laughs> and I just throw my card down and say, I want whatever this buys me, and I don't ask the questions about cost, I don't ask about, hey, what should I actually be getting? You know, you're, you said you're 26. What kind of tests should a 26-year-old male be getting that might not necessarily be that obvious to you or covered underneath this great insurance plan. So I always want to throw that in as a, as a fun fact. Like I said, I, I got to pick on you here with your, yeah, your self-proclaimed uh, language guy. So, you know, I got to, I got to right, make sure right. that we're speaking the right terms here. Well, I also, I always, also always find that every, everyone's got good insurance and you know that, and I always ask people, what does that mean? Like, what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that you only have to pay 5% of the bill? And, and I think that to, to speak to your largest, to comment on your larger point, you're absolutely correct. This is a point that's very well documented and very well understood in economics that the, you know, disintermediating people from the outcomes of their choices leads to suboptimal outcomes. And this isn't a controversial point. And I think that the the only reason this isn't more well understood is that if you want my take on it, this is my personal view. I think that the healthcare industry, and by that, I mean, whether it's the hospitals, whether it's health insurance companies, I think that they're engaged in an ongoing PR campaign that basically 24 seven communicates this idea that, you know, if when I look on Blue Cross's website and they say they call themselves a healthcare company, that's part of the problem. That that is, I'm, I'm going to borrow an idea from a white paper that I put out at my other job a, a couple years ago that I was just looking at the other day. We we were basically arguing the point that you know, and I, I'll, I'll translate the language. Patients aren't confused. It's the information that's given to them that's confusing. And there's a difference between those two things. Mm. So I think that. It's unfortunate that we, it's like rolling a boulder uphill basically to rewire people's brains. As you pointed out and called me out rightfully so, you know, even I have problems sort of have the wires in my brains because of, of what I was raised up in, you know, my entire life sort of talking about this casually, not, not, being a passive consumer of, of healthcare, not understanding it. 
but it's important for people to feel like the choices that they make matter. It's important for them to feel like that they need to drive to a specific location to get that routine care where it's going to be, they know the patient that, uh, excuse me, the physician that's there and they feel invested in their care. They feel like that the choice that they make matters that they can shop around to the extent that's possible in this really screwed up system that we have, you know, and there's a needle to thread here because there's a lot of research out there on the other side that suggests that high deductible health plans are a complete failure, right? So, so I think patients as consumers of healthcare need to be equipped with the necessary tools to be good consumers and employers, the people who provide them health plans in our society, a lot of them, they have a role to play in that. There, there is a conversation, there's trust that needs to be built. It's a process, um, but it's one that we need to get started today. And that's kind of why I and to bring this full circle. That's why I wrote this paper, The No Do Gap. We need to start implementing some of these things that, that are well understood by practitioners in the industry, like my boss, John Harvey, you know, he's a, he's a total trailblazer. He's, he's killing it out there. He just has so much knowledge to share with employers that, that can help them redefine their and their members on the health plan understanding of how care is, is coordinated. It's such an opportunity for, for improvement. That's very nicely said, and I appreciate you coming full circle. You know, you're almost doing my job for me. Darren, thanks for joining us. That's going to be it for this episode. Once again, that's Darren Fogarty, Employee Benefits Advisor with Wincline. It was a pleasure talking to you. And, and again, thanks for reaching out to the show. And uh, these conversations are fun because we love engaging with the audience. And, you know, it's not going to be us that changes the world, but we like to put ideas out there. And it's going to be people like you that uh, are winning the hearts and minds of people all over the country. Well, I appreciate the kind words. Thank you for having me on. And it's, you're right. It's great conversations between people who have interesting ideas that may or may not be right. And we'll only know if we talk about them. So I appreciate your voice in this industry. And um, anytime, anytime you want to talk again. Open debate, open dialogue, and open choices. It's a very powerful force in economics and elsewhere. So that's going to be it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. For more information about direct care, visit freedomhealthworks.com. To catch all of our episodes and be like Darren and have a great t-shirt from our podcast that says health insurance does not equal healthcare. We have all of our goodies online there too at healthcareamericana.com. Special shout out to Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro for all production work on Healthcare Americana and to Melissa Turpin for all her great management of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Healthcare can be complex. If you're managing a chronic or life-threatening illness, Patients Rising is here for you. We built the Patients Rising Concierge to help you navigate stressful health decisions and get the support you deserve. You will find personalized support by calling, emailing, or visiting our website. Our team is standing by to help with your unique situation. Find the help you need today at patientsrisingconcierge.org. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com 
and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.